one of the web editors at Shameless Magazine. Back in the fall of 2013, a group of Shameless editors and writers got together to talk about how shadism impacts their lives. That hours-long conversation took place in the home of Sheila Sampath, our editorial director. Almost all of our magazine meetings take place in Sheila's living room, but that night back in 2013 was a night I thought back to so many times, having been honored to share space with these brilliant people and be trusted to hear and record their stories and lived experiences. The conversation that night moved from how colonial and racist systems are intertwined with beauty industry standards, to family expectations, to how someone feels in their own skin. This podcast has been a long time in the making, and a lot has changed since the initial conversation. Some of the people you'll hear have now moved on from Shameless, while others are now editors with the magazine. One of the biggest changes is that the short documentary we discuss, Shadism, directed and written by Naini Theogaraja, has been refilmed by Naini and the Refuge Productions team as a full-length documentary titled Shadism Digging Deeper, which made its world premiere in 2015. With the release of Shameless's Alternative Beauty issue earlier this year, in 2016, we really wanted to emphasize that beauty is resistance. And Sheila describes this vividly in her editor's letter, writing, Unpacking and understanding the concept of beauty is important. Reclaiming beauty is important. Redefining beauty is important. It's resistance and it's truly radical. Like the pages of the alternative beauty issue, we hope that this recorded conversation on shadism from the Shameless Archives sparks many more conversations on how we do and can resist every day we exist. My name is Sheila Sampath. I'm South Asian, but born and raised in uh, Toronto, Canada. I am Shannon Clark. I'm a Black Canadian of Barbadian descent. I am Michelle Kay, and I am Chinese Canadian. My name is Manisha Agarwal Shifaletti, and I'm a mixed race um, white and Indian Canadian, born and bred in Toronto. The documentary starts off with a discussion about the sun and the warnings many of us have heard about it. How would you describe your relationship with the sun and has this changed for you over the years? So I think I can relate most, I I think this came up in the documentary, um, which is a lot of the warnings um, about the sun. So I remember a conversation I was having with my mom and my aunt and it was over, we were talking about like a good moisturizer to use in the, the summer and so we were talking about it and my aunt said oh but don't use that one because that like makes you really dark and I was really young so I didn't not really really too young to understand what she meant but it was one of those well wait I'm like I'm already black I don't understand what you mean <laughs> like and I think that was the first time that I realized that what she meant was there are acceptable levels of like blackness or you know like you don't want to get darker because that would be bad or something. And um, so that started my you know, sunscreen all the time, stay out of the sun. And you know, that's not fun. Like it's summer, right? You want to go out. And um, even just, you know, when, with my white or lighter skin friends who would like, oh yeah, let's just go and tan and do stuff. I'm like, well, it's obviously never been a concern for me. But I, you're always like, I have such a to- like a totally different relationship with summer and the sun than everyone else because I've re- like I remember all of these warnings from like my family, mostly the women in my family. Just like you, know, you don't want to go out too long. 
and it's not about health, it's about appearance. Like, you don't want to get too dark, because that would be awful. I'm a cyclist, and I obviously spend a lot of time outside. Um, and I remember when I was starting to get into cycling, um, and I was, I don't know, like a teenager, my mom would be telling me that I shouldn't be spending so much time outside, and that um, in the summertime I always get so dark, and that it just wasn't ever really about like UV rays. That wasn't that wasn't part of the discussion. It was just like, oh, you look so dark, you look so tanned. And I've never actually had like a conversation with my mom just about like, why is that bad? But I can kind of, I guess, guess at the idea of what she's getting at. Like, it's just not acceptable. Um, and it's not like it's, it's not like it's her fault because it is something that is so systemic and something that she's grown up with being told that you shouldn't be too tan or you shouldn't be so dark. But, um, you know, I mean, it sort of used to bother me as a kid, but as, as I got older, it was more like, I just, I'm going to do what I want to do. And for me, being outside and doing the things that I want to do meant freedom and agency over my own activities. So, um, so my relationship with the sun is different in that, like, now I just don't care. <laughs> and now I'm just going to go out and, like, ride around or do whatever and um, be happy with it. Mm -hmm. For me, uh, that was another, like, I was just like, oh, I could totally relate to this. And um, it was really sad and also comforting to, yeah, see that named by someone else. Um, but yeah, growing up, I was just not allowed in the sun, you know? And there's, like, all these pictures of me at, like, Disneyland with my mom with these, like, huge hats on, like, these, like, fashion sun hats and... Um, and like full pantsuits so that like my legs won't get tanned. Like it's just, it was so ridiculous. Um, and yeah, like when I would go out to play, you know, so I was like, oh, you come back quickly because you're going to, you're going to turn dark. You're going to turn dark. Um, and I, I've always reacted really badly to that. Like I've never had, like it's, it's always been a point of contention between my mother and I. Um, and I remember even like I'm 32 now, um, but I think maybe like four years ago, I mentioned to my mom that I went to like a baseball game. I go to baseball games all the time. And her initial reaction to that was like, why would you, oh, you're, you're out in the sun. Why would you be, why would you go sit in the sun all day? And at some point I just was like, you know, I know that that bothers you, but it doesn't bother me. So I, I just don't want to hear about it anymore. Like, I just, I don't care. Um, and you can, I can tell now, you know, even if it's like a nice, if it's like a nice day, I'm like outside for two minutes or I'm waiting for her, like, you know, we're meeting somewhere. Um, or if I sit in the car with her and I'm on the sunny side of it, you know, she's like, well, cover up your arms, cover up this. And like, I'll kind of have to tell her not to do it, but that's her initial reaction. And it's this intense, intense fear of the sun. And I, I can see that internalized in me a little bit too. Like I can catch myself if I've been out in the sun for, or, like I like sunny days, I, it cheers me up, it's nice to be outside. But I do notice that yeah, if it's really, really sunny and I'm out for a really long time, I kind of catch myself being like, oh, I'm gonna tan. And then I'll be like, okay, wait a second and unpack it and then have fun again. But it's interesting like how hard that is, even after being aware of it for, you know, as many years as I have been and trying to have conversations around it. Um, yeah, it's been a really challenging thing and now I'm kind of at a point where I'm like, okay, you know, it's like, it's, it is what it is and you know, just kind of deal with it. But I remember when like UV rays became a thing, it was 
like kind of exciting for my mom because it was it legitimized all of the anti-sun sentiments that she had and um like yeah there was kind of this period where I, I guess it still happens right we're on the news they'll always have these like oh new study says that you need like spf 1 million to go outside <laughs> so you don't get skin cancer and most of that stuff is for like pale skin like white people um, but my mom loves that stuff. Like she loves hearing about it because it just legitimizes like, oh, I'm, I've always known the sun is bad for you. Right. And like, it's able, she's able to kind of take it away from the racism and kind of put it towards like a health thing and be like, it's for your own good that you're not in the sun. Um, so I still get like, S, like SPF, like 80 face cream for my birthday which is in the summer and I still don't wear it but it's it's really really interesting to kind of see how like just the shift in conversation around the sun for completely different reasons and really more related to white people I think than to darker skinned people um how that was just so welcomed and co-opted by <laughs> by my mom to sort of be able to tell me not to go out there was a moment that I snapped, like, I was like, I can't hear about this anymore, we, you just have to stop. And I think it was this moment that, like, all it did, to me, what it represents, I mean, and I guess this is less about the sun and just more about shadism in general, is this idea that you can be whiter. And I can change my skin color, like, I can look lighter and I can look darker. Like, I think that I'm kind of in this, like, you know, middle ground where, like, I can maybe pass for North Indian. I can look really thumbnail if I want to, you know, and so it can go kind of either way. Um, and my mom sees that as like a privilege. So it's sort of like, oh, if you can look lighter, why wouldn't you look lighter? But to me, my response to that is like, I'm never going to be a white person. And white people are never going to see me as a white person. Mm -hmm. And that quest for something that you can never be is so sad to me like I think it just it gets me down it doesn't feel good so I don't know it's just yeah you just go through life feeling like you're trying to be something that you can never ever be mm -hmm. and you might be a light-skinned person in your community but when you step out of that community you're still a person of color to a white person like there's I don't think there's anything I can do to be white passing and so like to me that's like that and I think there's like almost this myth in people's heads where if you're, oh, if your skin's light enough, they might, and you maybe squint your eyes a little bit, you can be like a dark-haired white person. It's not going to happen. I liked seeing that it wasn't just um, within my own community. I didn't realize that until high school when I was having a conversation with two friends of mine who are South Asian um, and on different ends of the, the color scale or whatever. And they were talking about it and having this conversation. Um, and I was like, oh wait, I didn't realize that this wasn't just like a West Indian thing. I didn't realize that this um, was so pervasive across um, cultures because I it didn't have um, any opportunity to have this conversation before then. Um, and like I had a lot of white friends in elementary school and. I grew up in like the Britney Spears, Jessica Simpson, Christina Aguilera era of things and like going through puberty at that time when everybody who's considered beautiful is like white and blonde and blue eyed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's the same thing as like, oh man, I wish like I looked like this and I feel really defective and I wish I, you know, looked this way. And so to hear 
that, okay, this isn't just my experience and it's not just in my community is comforting but also really sad. And I think, though, what's good about that is that um, I think it's very easy to, when people bring these things up, to say, like, oh, it's it's paranoia, it's just kind of in your head and it's not a real, a real thing. But um, I like hearing... I don't like hearing it, but it's it. I think it's important that we have conversations like this because, um, unless it's you know a very specific conversation, it never comes up in larger discussions about body image. Like that's it's always about um, and it's important, but it's always about like weight and other things. But it's not really about you know shadism that doesn't come up unless it's a specific conversation um, in a specific community. So. One of the things we don't talk about when we talk about avoiding the sun or we talk about going in the sun is its links to classism and the history of, you know, who works in the sun and who doesn't work in the sun and who's allowed to stay out of the sun and who's allowed to, you know, kind of enjoy the sun in these sort of recreational ways and things like that. And to me, just the idea of being allowed to avoid the sun is kind of this reference to, you know, a kind of labor and a kind of lifestyle that is like indoors or you know office-based work or factory-based work as opposed to like out in the fields kind of work and I think a lot of a lot of the um, I mean a, I think a part of shadism is you know just the racism and the history of colonialism and things like that um, and I think a lot of it too is the links to classism that you know people who work outside are darker skinned because you're outside all day right and the people who work inside are lighter skinned and there's just sort of like these kinds of like class privileges that I think come with that that um, I really hope that the documentary kind of expands on uh, when it's um, I, I have a feeling it will just because like it, there's like the seed of it there and it's a really good seed um, but yeah I'm, I'm really interested in also you know kind of talking about that because I think that you know also when we were talking earlier about racism among communities of color, um, or between, among and between communities of color and this sort of idea of language and how we group ourselves together. Um, I think one thing that gets erased from that, uh, not necessarily in activist communities, because we talk about class a lot in activist communities, but we don't talk about class in, 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 on broader, like in a broader sort of general discourse. And a lot of that I think is linked to class. And um, I think that you know, what people are saying when they say things like, oh, you don't look thumbal, it's like, they're saying it because of my skin color, but they're also saying it because I present it in a certain way, class-wise, too. And so it's it's kind of, yeah, I think that those things can't be unhooked from each other. It's also just really cool to talk about this stuff. There's like a lot of solidarity, I think, and I think like that's, I mean, what I was saying before about the film being really powerful in terms mm -hmm. of, um, yeah, just being able to see like see yourself mm -hmm. in other people. Shadism compounds the racism that we're used to talking about um, in a way that divides our communities even further. Speaking personally, how has this contributed to feelings of otherness among both racialized and non-racialized communities? Um, well, I guess I sort of already talked about this a little bit. Um, but I feel like when I was thinking about these questions and thinking about my own experience, um, I sort of thought about this difference between being fair and being white um, and how for me this has been a really difficult and very weird thing to deal with, um, especially because I am a mixed race person and, you know, I do have an entire, you know, white family and an entire non-white family and figuring out where I fit into all of that has been um, interesting, especially 
in being kind of the fairer one of my, me and my brother and um, kind of figuring out what that means in terms of how I get treated and having people tell me, you know, like, you could be anything. You could be from anywhere in the world and that should be really great. And having that sort of then erase all aspects of my identity to be a very kind of fluid looking person which is supposed to be complimentary, but it's never really felt that way. <laughs> and I haven't really decided why. Um, but yeah, I think just having, having this sort of issue of shade and color um, make me feel like I'm not part of any one community of color or non of color. And knowing that there is a difference between fairness and whiteness and that despite being a fair person, I'm still not the white person. Um, and what that means in terms of feeling connected to a particular community has generally just been very confusing and tiring. Mm. I guess I don't really, ex I'm trying to think of ways I experience otherness and I don't know if it's necessarily anything to do with shade, um, just race in general. So. Um, like things like inappropriate questions, comments, like the, the where are you from is always a huge one, um, which I only ever get in Canada. But um, I did go to Greece and Italy. That was the first time that I've ever experienced like stares. Um, I think that didn't really hit me till I left though, because while I was there, like whatever, I was like traveling. So I, it wasn't that big a deal, but um, I don't really experience it until you just get um, questions or the first thing someone says or about you is in reference to your race like upon meeting you that is when it feels very like oh I this is really important to you apparently um, and just like little things too like just trying to find makeup or like <laughs> anything skin tone related right and not having something there for you um, not seeing people who look like you um, in on commercials or on television, although that's changing, um, that is when that's where I've experienced other nights. Or even when there is a black person or um, on television, or and they're always like, so is Eldiana or like Halle Berry or someone. You know what I mean? Like that is when you're. That is when I've experienced otherness the most. Is just like there's no representation there for mm -hmm. me. How do you define white supremacy, and how does shadism work within that system? For me, white supremacy is really anything that elevates, like, whiteness above anything else. So in terms of shadism, beauty standards are surely part of that. So, like, this, um, like, need for lighter skin, straighter hair, light, bluer eyes, whatever it is, is just reinforcing this idea that, you know, the best you can be is white and that is like superior over everything else mm -hmm. so um, yeah what you were saying about just trying to get a little further up on that ladder is just another mm -hmm. you know aspect of white supremacy i think it's also the way like the way we handle that right so we're in we're part of this system but we see the escape out of the system as being us moving up as opposed to dismantling the system, yeah. right? And I know that dismantling a system isn't easy, you know, like I totally get that. But also, like, when we get privilege as whiter skin, like lighter skinned people, 
we take that privilege, mm -hmm. right? And we might say we're going to do something good with it, but we're also taking it, right? And I think I think that that happens a lot in like like especially with class stuff. And but one of the things that was really interesting was recently. Um, so do you guys know Cal Penn? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. like he was from Harold and Kumar. Mm -hmm. I, don't know, I guess he was on other shows too. So I used to love Cal Penn because I really like Harold and Kumar and like the idea of like White Castle as this like representation of whiteness and then like escaping from one. Like I, I think it's like I think it is like a goofy stoner movie, but it's also incredibly, incredibly political and like in this really funny way. So like I love Harold and Kumar. I think they're I think they're great. And so I've always kind of been this like weird Cal Penn fan. And then he tweeted this thing about stop and frisk and um, like in support of stop and frisk as like a brown man, like, you know, supporting this thing that hurts other men of colors, especially black men um, or, you know, West Indian men or, you know, darker skinned South Asian men. And to me, that example, like that was... I mean, first of all, I just like stopped having like a like, crush on him after that. It's like, you suck, dude. You used to be cool. You're not cool. Um, but also it was like, like to me, that exemplifies exactly what's wrong with this stuff, right? It's like you have this person who, you know, is in these like, I'm going to call them anti-racist donor movies. I think like that's what they were, right? So you have this guy that was in these anti-racist donor movies that was in a movie about racial profiling, right? Like Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay is all about racial profiling of like a Korean man and like an Indian man. And you, you get, you, you are now in a position of power. Like you're not like, like you're like this famous actor, you're like in the Obama administration, like you are this like person that has all this power. Mm -hmm. And for the second you get it, you're an asshole. Like you are an awful human being mm -hmm. to the person that's darker than you mm -hmm. because you're now a part of like mm -hmm. the white mm -hmm. system. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that I think that that happens so, so much. And I think it happens in really small ways all the time. And it's like, it's like, we see it in like, in these ways where like, you know, one person will, in a community will kind of get a job in a space and then dissociate themselves from the other people in that community so that they can identify with the white community and they don't have to, they don't have to be the brown person at work. They can be like, you know, people at work still see them as like the brown guy, you know, it's like, but they can pretend like they're not, right? And I think that that happens so much. And I think that we need to like, and we need to call people on it. Yeah. Like, I think it's healthy to call people on it. But I think that that, I don't want to like, I understand why that's a coping mechanism. Like, that's the easiest path out is to just like, go up. But the idea of like up and down is what's problematic, mm -hmm. right? And then that being attached to lightness is problematic. Just about that, um, the same thing happened with Don Lemon. Do you guys remember? I don't know if you remember, mm -hmm. but that on CNN. And I just, I remember like head desk. <laughs> I was just so upset because he said, um, I'm pretty sure this was during the George Simon trial. And he was saying like, oh, well, you know, black men and women don't want to experience racism you know, dress properly and stay in school and don't have kids out of wedlock. And I just remember it was just so bad. And I remember this guy who I actually, you know, think is pretty smart about some things. And I'm sure he was totally innocuous. He's like, oh, well, Don Lemon takes on black culture. And I was like, listen, <laughs> it's racism has nothing to do with how you dress or, you know, 
how many kids you have, when you had them. Like, that's not the issue. The issue is race. And Don Lemon is here with this amazing platform. And, and by all means, is a, is a successful black man. So then to be on television in a very, like, white space, CNN, mm -hmm. to say, like, this is what you need to do to combat racism. This is what I did, and I'm not experience ra experiencing racism. was another thing. Like, okay, oh, I've escaped, and you can too, or whatever. And I was like, look, Obama is, like, the president, and he experiences racism every day. It really doesn't matter at all. He, man, is, like, well-dressed and whatever, and is part of the heteronormative nuclear family, and he experiences racism every day. Mm -hmm. So I just found that logic or that thinking that, you know, I've got to this place so I don't experience mm -hmm. racism anymore and that you're experiencing racism because you're too dark or mm -hmm. whatever is just so hurtful. Yeah. I, yeah, and it's putting the blame on the on the individual. Yeah, yeah. and I think that that goes back to just the myth of capitalism, right? So like, you can work your way out of poverty, right? Like, so race isn't an issue, you can work your way out of poverty. And then it's like, oh, race isn't, race may be an issue, so you can like work your way out of your darkness. You mm -hmm. just have to buy these products or do these things, and like that's, that myth of like, like merit, like I mean, it's the myth of meritocracy in a way. But it's like, yeah, you won't get shot if you don't do X, Y, Z. You will be successful if you work this hard. Like it, that's that's it's such a myth, and that's it that's the capitalist myth. myth, right? Yeah. Do you think men face the same challenges as women? Yes, in a different way, I think. Um, well, maybe not so much. Um, I'm thinking about this in terms of like sexuality, say, or gender, um, and that I think they're like darker skinned men are considered more dangerous and threatening but at the same time more masculine um so all the good and bad that that you know encompasses right so at the same time if you are a dark skinned um person uh well man like out in the world you're a threat but you're also i don't know more of a man whereas like lighter skinned men are are safer and non-threatening but also sort of feminized i don't know if that's maybe just what I'm thinking um, or how I interpret things but I, I have always seen like going off of pop culture in Hollywood that like lighter skinned men are considered safer like sexual you know for white women mm -hmm. I don't know my first thing is like Dirty Dancing Havana Nights right like she is in this forbidden relationship with this Cuban guy and then I was watching it I was like but they pick like the lightest skin Cuban guy mm -hmm. they could find right like you know, and as and it's it's supposed to be like this huge like radical thing, but and then like the new bachelor, which is like a huge thing. Like, look, we have our first non-white bachelor. He's from uh, somewhere in South America, and I'm like, but if you did not know this about him, if you see a picture of him, he's blonde, blue-eyed. Like, it's just I think they're considered safer, non-threatening, mm. but also sort of feminized. Mm. How do you see that with the guy from One Direction? Yeah, the ethnic, the ethnic one. one. Sorry, scare quotes, <laughs> ethnic. Um, he actually is eth ethnic. He's yeah. part Pakistani, I guess. But he also is very exotic, but also very light. Yeah. And also, like, the rebellious one. Mm -hmm. And I think it's... <laughs> bad boy. Yeah, he yeah. gets to... He's the bad boy. He has... You know, especially when it comes to things like um, skin lightening and stuff, the act of being very conscious about your appearance and what you put on your body and stuff, which is a very feminized sort of activity. I just noticed last time I went to India, 2011, I think, was the first time, and it probably has been happening before, but maybe I didn't notice, um, that they had men in the skin lightening mm -hmm. product commercials, 
and it was a thing that men could do and in the marriage ads I was looking at they were there were more ads that noted the skin tone of the men who were kind of advertising as well as the women so I thought that was interesting and like maybe you know it's clear that this has been an issue for mm -hmm. longer than it's being kind of publicized but it's mm -hmm. interesting to see it more public than I had noticed before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What things do you do to decolonize or undo the impact of shadism and um, what have you found to be challenging and what has worked? For, I guess what I've done is to change or be very aware of the language that I use when I'm describing or thinking about my own body and my skin, my hair and whatever, just changing the language that I use really changes the way I feel about myself. Um, I mean, I don't really like, I, I don't, not like I describe my skin very often, whatever, um, but like I don't really like, like dark lightness really, just because of the connotations to that. Like I don't, I, I try not to use that imagery and with my hair, I don't say things like soft or hard or anything like that. Um, so for me, language has been a huge part of it. Um, and also just like being so tired <laughs> like of it, like just being so exhausted that I just, I've decided to, or I've tried to surround myself with other perspectives and like reading more about um, other people's experiences and talking to them has been a really good way to see that this is part of a larger problem. Um, and like there are ways to, that I can like change my attitude about it is to just realize that it's not like you were saying it's not my problem you know it's a larger system um, yeah so I've just been trying to change my, mm -hmm. my thinking around it it's hard though because you know your appearance is I think tied so much to how you feel about yourself or I think for a lot of people but for me it is so mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I think talking to other people for me has been really helpful. It's been a source of like being able to be open and honest, um, but also getting support from other people who have um, a similar experience or um, whatever. So stuff like this podcast, like talking about it with other people is really, really important. And again, also for like visibility and for us um, putting it out on the Shameless website, I think is going to be really beneficial to other to people who are going through a similar thing but maybe don't have outlets to um, respond or to talk about their feelings and experiences mm -hmm. so that's been really like a big help for me and like seeking out people and finding people that um, I feel safe talking about these things with mm -hmm. like everyone's been saying having good discussions and starting discussions with people and Kind of rising to that challenge I think has been really good. Sometimes it's really hard and sometimes I don't do it and I sort of think that I should and I don't really know how. So I'm trying to figure out a little more what kind of tools and kind of things I can use to to do that in spaces where I can't assume that everybody knows what I'm talking about or where I can't assume that this is that I can start from a certain place and just go and everyone's going to know what's going on. Um, but I think kind of doing some intergenerational work, mm -hmm. kind of including 
including lots of people and and keeping keeping the conversation going you know further further into different generations and different groups of people and like in the documentary you know we see this um, relationship between um, the narrator and her niece whose name is also Manisha <laughs> and and you know planting that seed and, and figuring out where these things come from and you know how important kind of children are in this in this path and and how much they absorb and how much they can learn and and kind of getting in on that level I think um, will be really important for carrying this kind of conversation on. Definitely uh, these kinds of conversations um, yeah I think yeah I'm really I was really excited about doing this podcast because it's an opportunity to talk to each other and get to know each other and I think that's really awesome. Um, and so yeah, having these kinds of conversations in safe spaces, um, and also just, I mean, to me, one of the most important things about any sort of feminist work and any sort of decolonizing work is like strong, like friendships among people that are like you, right? And like among, like, I mean, I, I, where I was talking earlier about the idea of like the solidarity among people of color and like women of color and like, what does that actually mean? And, um, and so, yeah, like with feminist work in general or any sort of like anti-colonial work, like I really, really try to form strong friendships with like other women, other like uh, like women and trans people, people of color, um, women of color especially, um, because like I think we're also socialized to really like compete with each other and that mm -hmm. comes out in things like shadism and it comes out in other ways too, like in really awful ways. And so to me, like, yeah, the most radical things we can do and that I try to do is like, yeah, just having solid friendships, you know, and having open conversations. And I think that's like a really, yeah, I, I just, I just feel like that's an incredibly, incredibly radical thing. Um, and then for me personally, outside of that, oh yeah. And then I guess the other part to that is also having conversations, um, in spaces that aren't as safe. Um, like the other day I talked to a colleague at work about, uh, not at the public, at OCAD, um, about shadism and about growing up and what it's like to grow up hating yourself and it was this really intense open conversation and then he started to cry and then it was really oh, awkward wow. but it was, I mean he's really cool but it, I think it's also like, yeah like the more comfortable I get in these spaces the more comfortable I am making other people uncomfortable with it and I'm okay with that you know like I I was okay with kind of with making him cry I felt kind of bad about it um so she had to go teach a class right after her um he wasn't like sobbing but you know his eyes welled up and I was like are you crying but yeah like I think having these these conversations in comfortable spaces have allowed has allowed me to take them into more uncomfortable spaces and make other people uncomfortable and I think that that's been really healthy for me um, and then the other thing is like, I mean, I, yeah, like I had a lot of self-loathing and a lot of internalized racism growing up and I think now that I'm busier and <laughs> tired and I have less energy to do things and less resources to do things to my body, um, I'm kind of just starting to appreciate things about mm -hmm. my body more and I mean it's kind of coming at it for different reasons like just for being tired and not having a ton of cash um, but yeah like it's been it also just feels really like I, I went through this phase where I had Japanese straightening done on my hair which just literally broke it, like it my hair was breaking and 
it looked weird too because yeah Indian people don't have like dead straight hair like it's weird um and so yeah like just now I don't put anything in my hair and I don't use a straightening iron anymore and I still blow dry it but I don't use a brush just use my hands yeah. and like that feels really good to do that and occasionally I'll like let it go super curly and like I like getting compliments for that it makes me feel good and like I don't I wear lipstick and I wear a lot of makeup and and that's kind of it so yeah like kind of doing those kinds of things and like like I remember like the first time I left the house without straightening my hair I was like this is gonna be weird that it felt good and I don't know I think that those like really small steps are, go a long way and yeah I'm kind of just honest about my body like I'm kind of like yeah I have hair in places and like <laughs> that's like a thing and like yeah like you know if I meet someone new I'm like you know if we get stuck on an island for a week like I'm gonna have a mustache and that's cool like I just think you should know I mean I don't always get second dates but like that's fine right because that's someone I want to be stuck on an island with anyway but yeah but I think like that kind of stuff has been really healthy for me and just being open about it, it's really healthy and so yeah, feeling comfortable and then making other people uncomfortable has been like, that's like, yeah, really important decolonizing practice for me. listening and thanks to lol for letting us use their track dead happiness off their newest album find safety please check them out on bandcamp at lolforest.bandcamp.com that's l-a-l-f-o-r-e-s-t dot bandcamp.com